Well, at this time, I'll invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. We're continuing to work through our series in Genesis, and Marshall took us through to the end of chapter 2 last Sunday, and now we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3, and we're going to cover through to verse 13 today, and we will leave what is commonly referred to as the curse uh, in verses 14 through, really we'll go to the end of the chapter next week. Uh, But for today, we're going to be in verses 1 to 13, so let's begin reading Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Once again, as we return to the early chapters of Genesis, we have before us a unique Event, a one time situation in which Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, and of course they gave into this temptation and sinned. And it is here in this event that in Adam all die, as Paul says elsewhere. The human race here falls into sin as Adam, our covenant head, our federal head, our representative, eats of this fruit. This event here is both devastating and crushing, and it is also incredibly important to understand our fallen world that we live in. It's important to understand our own selves as sinful creatures, and it is also very important, as we've been seeing, to understand our need for Christ Jesus and to understand what it is that he has accomplished in his coming. So this is a, obviously a very unique, unrepeatable event. But it is also true that while it is unique, temptation also continues to play out in a very similar way. Different, but it has similar features today as it did in the garden. 
And so this also instructs us about the nature of temptation to sin. And if we would learn from this, wisdom awaits us here for for our own continued battles with sin. And so as we go through this, our outline today is really just a series of four headings. First, the tempter. Secondly, the temptation. Thirdly, the sin. And fourth, the shame. So the tempter, the temptation, the sin, and the shame. And none of that, none of those headings sound terribly encouraging, but I assure you we will also cover good news as well. But we have to deal with this text that is before us, and it is not good news here. So let's begin with the tempter. As chapter 2 ends, if you remember back to last week, as chapter 2 ends, all is still very good. All is well. Adam and Eve, they've been placed in the Garden of Eden. Adam has had Eve created and given to him. The man and his wife are in the paradise of God. And they have their marching orders from God. They're to keep and to protect this garden sanctuary. If you recall, they're to be fruitful and multiply. And they're specifically to not eat of this particular tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But as chapter 3 begins we have this mysterious character suddenly appear and enter the picture. And Adam's guardianship over creation and over the garden and his headship over his wife, these things are put to the test here in chapter 3. So verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say? And so... With that, with very little by way of background information, with very little by way of explanation, the scriptures introduce us to the great enemy of our souls, to Satan himself. Now, he is not so named here by Moses. We don't find the word Satan. We don't find the word the devil here. But this is clearly no ordinary serpent, no ordinary being, even though the the details in Genesis chapter 3 are relatively slim. But if there's any doubt, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, should cast that far from us. It's very explicit in identifying him. Romans tw- or Revelation 12, 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So there... Revelation is kind of piling up the the names and descriptions of this being. The great dragon of Revelation is none other than the ancient serpent. Clearly he has in mind there Genesis chapter 3. He calls him the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Again, this idea of deception being a reference to chapter 3 of Genesis. This is how it began. Eve herself declaring that she was deceived by this serpent. In verse 1... Of Genesis 3, the serpent is said to be more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, some take this simply to be a reference to Satan himself, while others do see this as a general reference to serpents and would understand Satan to have chosen then a serpent as an instrument through which he would bring about temptation to Adam and to Eve. So this word translated here in the ESV as crafty, describing the serpent, is a bit of an ambiguous term. Uh, The Hebrew word here can be a good thing, crafty can be a good thing, or it can be a bad thing. 
It can be the kind of shrewdness that the wise possessed, possess, but it can also be a guile that a wicked person might possess. And so Satan comes now and he takes what is a created, shrewd animal and he perverts its design for his own malicious ends to use this craftiness in obviously a wicked way to trip up and deceive Adam and Eve. Now, as we think about the serpent, as we think about Satan, there are so many different questions that can arise here as we consider his presence in the garden. When, where did he come from? When did he rebel? Was there some sort of rebellion before this that we're not told about in Genesis? We might wonder why he has permitted access to the garden and to Adam and Eve, etc. And the scriptures aren't entirely silent on this, but it's also not easy to piece these things together. And the scripture doesn't answer every question that we have about these matters. But it does give us enough that we can know what we need to know about what's going on here. If we think about references to Satan's fall elsewhere in Scripture and to war in heaven between Satan and his angels and Michael and these other angels, there's debate about the best way to understand those texts and about exactly when those things occurred. Uh, Places like Revelation chapter 12, which I read verse 9 earlier, where the dragon, we're told, is thrown down and there's this war. Uh, And we think of Jesus' own statement in Luke chapter 10 about how he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Uh, These texts seem to be referring uh, to Satan's defeat that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ and the the spread of, of the gospel, as the gospel comes and as people believe. So the Luke 10 reference is when the, those that Jesus sent out return and they're telling him of the victory they had as they were preaching Christ and as uh, they were casting out demons even in that case. And he says he saw Satan fall like lightning. Even in Revelation chapter 12, the context is clearly after the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ that this war is said to arise. Another text that is debated about these matters comes from Ezekiel chapter 28. Referenced this a couple of weeks ago, and there there's a, a, a prophecy about the king of Tyre. However, it seems almost certain to have a double reference, referring not simply to the king of Tyre, but also to Satan himself, that the king of Tyre is being compared to Satan. He is a devil-like figure, a son of the devil. Here's what we read in Ezekiel 28:13. It says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. It goes on in verse 14. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You were blameless in your ways from the the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And then verse 17. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. So if this is indeed a reference to Satan, and I think it is, then he was in the garden as an angel of God, a cherub, Ezekiel says. And so this, what we read in chapter 3, may well be the very moment when Satan himself fell in his pride. It could be that there was a rebellion prior to this that Genesis doesn't speak of, but the Bible doesn't clearly, I would submit, uh, teach that to us. 
Now, some might disagree, and I would certainly not go to the mat on that matter. Uh, there are many details that aren't specified that are a bit unclear about Satan, but the reality of his existence and his malice is most certainly not unclear. That much is clear. As to the question of why this occurs here, again, many answers will, uh, are left unstated, and many that we can give don't always satisfy one's intellectual curiosity. But one thing that is clear is that this is now a test of Adam's obedience. Adam has been created. He is the representative of mankind. He has been brought into covenant with the Lord. He has been given his marching orders by God. And now we have a test before him. Will Adam prove to be faithful in the discharge of his duties? Will he guard the temple sanctuary that is the Garden of Eden, or will he not? Will he be a faithful son of God, or will he not? And of course, we know the answer to this. So we have the tempter here present. Secondly, the temptation. The second half of verse 1, it says, He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan's cunning is immediately evident here. First of all, he doesn't approach Adam. He approaches Eve. Adam is ultimately placed in charge of this situation. The command even to not eat the tree was given to Adam. As we looked at last week, Eve was created and given to Adam as his helper, his helpmate with her. Satan goes around Adam, challenging his headship, challenging him by going after Eve. And the question that he raises here to Eve draws her into this conversation. Now, first of all, the fact that Eve doesn't act surprised by a talking serpent is something people wonder about. But I don't think this means that animals prior to the fall could talk. But it is likely part of what draws her into the conversation. Here's something that's unusual. Here's something she hasn't seen yet that's different. Here's the serpent speaking, and she's drawn into this conversation. And what Satan does then is he questions and he distorts God's word. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And of course, the simple answer is no. No, he didn't say that. That's not what he said. But Eve is drawn in here to what seems like maybe a basic request for clarification. Well, here's a serpent asking a question. I've heard that maybe you can clarify this for me. Did God actually say you're not allowed to eat any of this? And even in this question, he's already casting doubt upon upon God's goodness, emphasizing perhaps God is being overly strict in his ways, stingy. And she seeks to correct him. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, maybe you noticed in her response there, she overcorrects the serpent. God never did say, don't touch it. Many draw attention to the fact that this overcorrection is done in such a way that this also magnifies 
God's strictness. It takes it a little level further. God never said, don't touch it. He said, don't eat it. Now, maybe it would be good advice to just not touch it, but that's not actually what he ever said. Again, this is not an uncommon thing. People take what God says and they want to make it even more strict than what he has actually said. Now, it's not entirely clear why Eve responds this way or why she believes that to be what God said. Now, when God actually gave this command to Adam to not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, Eve had not yet been created. We've seen that already. And so it's possible that Adam has poorly instructed Eve about what it was that God said. Regardless, Eve is not entirely clear on the matter, it seems, and now the command of God has been sufficiently muddy. Satan has come asking a a muddied question about what he said. She responds in a way that's not quite what God has said. And so the command is sufficiently muddled. And there is nothing unclear about it, if you remember back. God's command to Adam, do not eat of this tree, and the day that you do, you will surely die. But now it's muddied, and doubts arise. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so now Satan just very directly challenges God's word and command. He calls God a liar. He says, you will not surely die. And this might be that he's saying, you know, we, we don't know. You don't know certainly for sure that you're going to die. It may not be the case. Or he might be just straight up contradicting, saying, no, you will surely not die. Either way, Satan is lying here, casting doubt upon God and his word. And he insinuates that God is holding out on them, that God's command is not, in fact, in their best interest. But rather, God is keeping them from a greater glory. He knows that if you eat this tree, you'll become like him in knowing good and evil. He's holding out on you. He's holding you back. Doubt is cast upon God's goodness here. He's being overly strict because he doesn't really have your best interest in mind. This this is the kind of thing that is implanted in Eve's mind here. There is an opening of your eyes that awaits you, he says. An understanding and knowledge that if you would just take this, a wisdom that you will gain and possess. God knows this and he doesn't want you to have it. This is very craftily impressed upon Eve and implanted in her mind. And then we read in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. I said a couple of weeks ago that eating of this tree was an effort to gain wisdom and knowledge that was illicit. There was not God's revealed will. Adam and Eve were to wait upon God and to know the things that he would choose to reveal to them. And I think this confirms that understanding. Eve is drawn on this promise of a knowledge and wisdom she could have. She and Adam with her step around what God has revealed and what he has given to them in order to obtain this illicit knowledge. Now, as we think about Eve, sometimes when we read the Old Testament narratives and we read people doing things, we, we can sometimes just think, are you serious? How could you do this? How could you not see this? How could you not know? How could you worship that false God? We, 
And, and, and we don't always identify ourselves with the bad guy in the story when often we should. And the reality is, before we're too dismissive of Adam and Eve here, we, need, we would do well to consider our own battles with temptation. Because there are many things here in this temptation of Eve that continue to play out today. And I want to take just a few minutes to consider those things, a few of them anyway. First, notice the temptation is often subtle and full of half-truths. We just have to understand this reality. If we think that this is going to be obvious, that right and wrong is just always going to be obvious and just really clear, then we are in a bad situation. We're in a dangerous spot. Subtlety is how it all begins here with Eve. It begins with what seems like a harmless question. Did God really say this? He just, he just seems confused about what's going on. And so Eve is drawn in. Moreover, much of what Satan says is sort of true. In a way, there was a knowledge that awaited Adam and Eve if they were to eat of this tree. God confirms in verse 22 of chapter 3 that they became like God in some way. Moreover, Satan said, your eyes will be opened. And in verse 7, we'll see their eyes were opened. But of course, he left out some rather important information in what he was saying to Eve. And this is how temptation often comes. It comes subtly. It comes full of partial truths. For example, the temptation to make money and possessions one's idol. It can begin with just some rather what seem like harmless thoughts. Well, everyone needs money to survive. That's true enough. It's not wrong to make a good amount of money. Having money is not necessarily an evil. Of course, these things are true. But this can be, if we're not careful, the way we are sucked in until one day we are never satisfied. We're always wanting more. Under the guise of, well, I've got to work, we now continually work, continually trying to make more to feed our lifestyle of more and more and more. The temptation toward adultery. Rarely is it ever just zero to adultery for somebody. It begins with subtle suggestions. Certain thoughts are not going to hurt anybody else. No one's even going to know about it. And for a time, it certainly seems to not hurt anybody. So what's the big deal? Nobody knows about it. This is how it can begin. And so on with all manner of temptations. It's often very subtle. We're told, we begin to tell ourselves, we're convinced, oh, you can walk this line, you'll be fine. You can get up this close, you won't fall over it, it'll be fine. You can hang out there, you can live there. Or we think, we told, God wouldn't want you to not enjoy that, would he? God is not prudish. He wants you to enjoy yourself. It's good to have fun once in a while. I think there's partial truths in some of these statements that we hear, but it can suck us right in to sin. Evil declare in verse 13 that she was deceived. Right? Deception. It is by nature difficult to detect. That's what that word means. That's the whole point of it. It doesn't just come in advertising itself as temptation to sin. You know, down this pathway lies misery. 
It doesn't come at us that way. And so again, this is important for us to understand and to know that we would not be naive about temptation. That we might remain diligent and on guard. This is, I think, a call to careful discernment and to prayerfulness. I mean, Jesus, the Lord's Prayer, tells us to be praying that we would not be led into temptation, that we would be delivered from evil. How often do we do that? We call out to God each day that we would be spared and helped in, temp- in our battles with temptation. They come subtly. We need to know and understand our need for God's help. So temptation often comes subtly, filled with half-truths. Second, temptation attacks God's word and God's goodness. This is a common trait of temptation. Again, certain, Satan first caused confusion about the word of God and about the command of God, and then it leads to calling it straight up false, not true. And it was replaced with this suggestion that God is holding out on Eve. He impugned in that God's goodness. Consider God's generous provisions that we've looked at in Genesis chapter 1 and into chapter 2 especially, of all that he gave to Adam and Eve, of all the trees that he did create. They were beautiful trees. They were good for fruit. You can eat of all of them except this one tree. God's generous provisions to Adam and to Eve. And yet all of that was forgotten. And the one tree that was off limits was used to call God's goodness toward them and to call, call his word into question. God's command, God's law was not good. That's what's being suggested. It's not in their best interest. And again, how common is this in sin and temptation? Where God's word is twisted up and marred. Did God really say that? Surely he can't really mean that. That would stand in the way of your fulfillment. Stand in the way of your enjoyment. It's fun. It's really a harmless thing. Whatever it might be. It's not a big deal. We, I mean, we're continually buying into those kinds of lies. That would be prudish of God. You don't want to look weird in front of other people. You want to look weird in the eyes of the world or strange or be thought of as backwards. You don't want to be called a fundamentalist. That name would be terrible to be branded by that. You don't want to be in these sights of those around you or any negativity. It might sting. It might hurt. Maybe God is holding out on you even. Part of sin is exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Again, God's and his word, they're not true or they're not good. That's what we are told in temptation. God's law is seen as repressive to human flourishing. So it's to be rejected. I mean, we can see this in any number of ways. Clearly in our sexual ethics all around us, we see this maybe most clearly. What the Bible says about that matter is too repressive for the 21st century. If you're to be your authentic self, you must just let that go free. But who hasn't experienced this kind of thing where sin promises something great to us? 
And maybe even at the time it seemed great, but in the end it turned out to be bitter poison. This is the way it works. Doubts are cast about God and his goodness towards you. His commands are seen as repressive. He's holding you back. Sin promises all this wonder. Pleasure, fulfillment, whatever it might be. A better way. The applause of the world. Easier life. Proverbs 5.3 says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. There's a draw there. There's a promise of something good. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. This is talking about adultery, the forbidden woman and the sin of adultery. It promises something, but in the end, it brings death. But we could apply this to many types of sins. There's some promise of good. There's some draw. It seems like honey, a good thing, a sweet thing. But if you go down that pathway, its end is death. It's the pathway to Sheol. It's not without reason that Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, what? Cut it off. Right? We're quick to say, well, he doesn't mean that literally. And that's true, of course. But it is literally better to go to heaven with one hand than to go to hell with two hands. And we don't say, well, he doesn't mean that literally, as if to say, well, therefore, sin's not really that big a deal. He's saying it intentionally to to grab our attention, to shake us by the shoulders, to remind us of how serious sin is. It's not something to toy with. It's not something to play with. Yes, it will promise great things to you. It will contradict God's word, but its end is the way of death. That's what Jesus is warning us about there. And if I could just address the kids for a moment, the young people here. You're being raised in families that are teaching you about the word of God. You're coming to church and you're hearing the word of God. And the world is going to call out to you at some point and tell you that's so restrictive. That's so backwards. You need to go out and live a little and experience all these wonderful things that are out there. They're coming for you. And you think, well, my parents, they don't let me do this. They don't let me do that. And I'm told that I need to listen to my parents, but I just want them to leave me alone so I can go do whatever it is I want to do. Every kid has experienced that feeling. And that is temptation. And God is our creator and he knows what is best for us and his law is not a pathway for any of us sinners to to climb a ladder in order to meet God's approval and get saved but his law remains good what he says is good for us he says children obey your parents this is good in the Lord to do this and 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 the response we have is I don't want to do that and you need to understand that that's a sinful response to that God knows what is best. It is in your best interest to listen to your parents and to submit to them, to hear, to learn from them as they seek to teach you about what is right and wrong and not to complain about whatever it is they would tell you to do. Not to try to make them do your bidding through whatever means you might try to use it. God knows what is best. We do not. Your parents don't know the best thing, except that they come to the word of God and are instructed by it. But on their own, they don't even know the best thing. 
We are all in need of God's word to reveal to us what is true and what is good and what is upright and holy. So temptation attacks God's word and God's goodness. Thirdly, beware of your senses and desires. Notice that when Eve saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit. Now our our sight and our smell and our ability to desire something, these are not inherently bad things. Indeed, God made the trees of the garden pleasant to the sight. We saw in chapter 2, he made a beautiful garden to behold. It is good and right to admire God's beautiful creation. There are things, there is objective beauty in the world to admire, and it's, we have the senses in which we can do that. That is a good thing. But here in chapter 3, Eve is now fixating on the forbidden tree and her sight and delight And her desires lead her astray. Now this is true even in Eve, who had a perfect, though changeable, though mutable nature. Satan played upon the wonder of this tree and her senses misled her. Notice Satan never directly even says to her, eat it, just go ahead and eat it. Rather, he very craftily says what he does and Eve's senses take over. And if Eve's feelings and senses and sights were misleading, and her desire led her astray here, how much more is this a problem for us on this side of the fall, where we are told that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick? Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17.9 tells us. Part of living by faith and not by sight is understanding that our sight, our understanding might lead us astray. Something may appear to be the right thing, appear to be pleasing to us, appear to be the good way, and yet be sin. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in its way, Its end is the way of death. It leads to death. Our senses can be misleading. We need to be wary of them. We are to seek to judge all by God's word, even where it conflicts with our feelings and with our sensibilities and with what culture around us might be telling us. We label, for example, sin as sin. We call it sin not based on our senses or whether we feel like that should be sin or not. That's not the judgment. That's not the judge, our own senses and feelings about it. Otherwise, we most certainly are going to just go along with the world. And so this is true even as Christians, even if as those born again, if given a new heart, if change has been wrought within you, we are still, we are still to be wary of our senses as we still have the flesh that remains within us. And there is still a war that wages within. Let's continue on. We've seen a temptation that Eve was under, and now the sin. 
Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It's amazing how consequential this act is, and yet how very simply and briefly and almost matter-of-factly the way it is stated here. She took of its fruit and ate. And of course, we read here that Adam is with her. He's been with her, evidently, apparently, the whole time. So we have the first man to abdicate his duty and his role to guard and protect his wife is the first man. He is apparently standing there while Satan converses with Eve and then follows her lead as she eats, gives him the fruit, and he likewise eats with her. So here the express command of God to not eat is violated. It's interesting that though Eve is the first one to eat, it is Adam's sin that is highlighted and drawn attention and, and that we hear more about, is more significant, you could say, elsewhere in Scripture. But even here in Genesis 3, when God speaks in verse 9 after sin has occurred, he addresses Adam first. When he comes to say what's going on, essentially, he asks Adam, he addresses the man. Moreover, it is upon Adam's eating that their eyes are then opened. Elsewhere in Romans 5, we're told that death came into the world through one man and that many died through one man's trespass. Again, Adam was the head of all humanity, certainly the head of his wife Eve, but also of all humanity. This act of disobedience on Adam's part is spoken of as a singular sin in places like Romans chapter 5, but it most certainly encompassed a variety of sins committed here by Adam, all at one time, essentially. There's explicitly breaking the command and eating the fruit, but there's neglect of his responsibility to lead Eve, to guard and maintain the purity of the garden sanctuary, and so on. And all of this occurs as Adam engages in this act of disobedience by which he violates the covenant with God, and plunges the world into sin and into death. And let's move quickly here to our last point, verse 4, the shame. The shame. The consequences of this act are enormous, and we're, we're living in them today. But we will be unpacking them as we go through uh, Genesis. The effects are many. And we might immediately think of, of the curse that God delivers, and, and the curse specifically of, of death especially. But before we get to that, and we'll come to verse 14 and onward next Sunday, but before we even come to the pronouncement of the curse, there are consequences that we see here that begin to unfold. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. Okay, so upon Adam's eating as a decisive act, both of their eyes are now open, and they knew that they were naked. So again, the serpent's word here is partly true. Their eyes are open. But it's not at all what they thought, is it? Right? And how, how typical of sin to overpromise and then completely devastate and let us down. Continuing in verse 7, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If you remember back to the end of chapter 2, the man and the woman were naked and they were not ashamed, we're told. Their unashamedness was tied to their innocence, to their purity, their lack of sin. But here, after they sinned, they now realize 
their nakedness. And they seek now to cover it up. It doesn't actually use the word shame here in these verses, but that is the idea. They were unashamed before, and now that's reversed. They are now ashamed. And shame at their physical nakedness is a byproduct of their shame at their spiritual nakedness, their sinfulness. That's what has changed here. They have become wretched and pitiable. They're exposed before the eyes of Almighty God who sees everything. They're physical, yes, but through that into every corner of their very souls. They know this and they seek to make coverings for themselves out of these fig leaves. Verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Whatever form precisely that God took here, Adam and Eve now know that he is present and they hide themselves from him. So it is possible that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the eternal Son of God walking in the garden with them. He is the image of the invisible God, always has been. He is the eternal Son. But it is also possible that these are figures of speech here to speak of God's presence However exactly Adam and Eve experienced it. Regardless, God has arrived in a special way here. Adam and Eve know it, and now they attempt to hide themselves from the Lord. They use these trees that God has created for their good and for their aid, for their health, food. They seek to hide from their Creator. And God then asks them what I think should be considered a rhetorical question. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? In chapter 4, God will ask a question of Cain. He will ask him where his brother Abel is. And when Cain refuses to answer, God then says, Abel's blood is crying to me from the ground. He knew precisely where Abel was. He was asking a question in order to give Cain an opportunity to confess what he had done. And God asks questions here similarly to Adam, not because he has no idea where they're hiding, but as a chance for them to come forth and acknowledge, specifically Adam, his sin. It might be similar to how a parent might say, who did this, knowing full well. Which child of theirs did this? It's giving them an opportunity to come forth and own it. Verse 10 says, And he, speaking of Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, rhetorical. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We see these two both blame shifting. Adam, in his response, blames Eve, but also implies that it's God's fault. This woman you gave me, if you hadn't done that, And Eve, for her part, 
of course, blames the serpent. It's his fault. He tricked me. He deceived me and I ate. There are numerous results of sin that are present here. There is shame, the shame of their loss of honor, their sinfulness, and with that also comes fear. We have for the first time in the Bible the presence of fear. And it's important to realize that the shame and the fear that they experience here are right responses to sin. I have heard this taught as if somehow they shouldn't have felt fear and shame. They shouldn't have felt this. That's simply not true. They've sullied themselves. The sentence of death hangs over them. And it is to Almighty God whom they are liable. And He has come for an accounting. And who would not tremble at such a situation and be very aware of their being exposed before God? That's the right and proper response to sinfulness, to understanding our sinfulness. How little of this kind of response do we see? How little fear of God and of his judgments exists today? People carry on. It's not the first time. Eating and drinking for tomorrow we die. It's the days of Noah. We'll see it in Genesis. Oh, well, whatever. God will not, we will not surely die. But the judge of all the earth misses nothing. And he will surely do what is right. He will judge the world in righteousness. And the punishment for sin is death. The shame at their nakedness is more than just some weird feeling about a lack of clothing. It is tied directly to their being exposed to their very core before God as sinners. Hebrews 4.13, I think, connects this when it says, And no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is what Adam and Eve were experiencing very literally as they're trying to physically cover themselves and spiritually. God sees right through every part of them. This is partly why we cower if we were naked. We don't want people seeing every part of us. It's not right. We don't like to be exposed. And their shame at their physical nakedness points to their spiritual nakedness and shame. Again, when one comes under the conviction of sin before God, there is a discomfort of that, of being exposed. We don't like the idea that God sees into my soul and knows my thoughts and knows everything I've done and everything I've thought. That's a very uncomfortable, exposing situation, and it's why people don't like that. It's a nakedness of sorts. Their desire, Adam and Eve, to cover themselves here. It's not all wrong. It's not all bad. Though it is obviously not nearly sufficient to cover their sin. God sees all and he knows all. I do take from this, and I think it's a right implication of this, that when shame at nakedness is gone from a person or from a society and things like nudity or near nudity become acceptable or celebrated things, it is a, just a further sign of a complete and utter lack of the fear of God. It is obviously not a good thing. 
It is not just that that kind of indecency, well, that's just wrong. And again, the, the lies come in here. God just doesn't want you to have any fun. He's just being overly strict, etc. It's tied to a much deeper issue. Whether we grasp God's holiness and our sinfulness even. Matthew Henry writes, blushing is now, on this side of the fall, blushing is now the color of virtue. We live before the eyes of Almighty God and we are exposed. Indecency and immodesty in this manner is not a good sign. It points to much deeper issues than just questions of style and whatnot. I'm not trying to draw legalistic lines here for us. But it's something to search our hearts about. We clothe ourselves now in this life with physical clothes. We are reminded of our need for a righteous clothing to cover our spiritual nakedness. And this comes to us only only in and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will see this more next week as we get into God's own covering that he gives to Adam and Eve. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin. And we have fallen with them as Adam represents us. Moreover, in our own lives, every man and woman since has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have stood the test and resisted temptation. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came to the earth as a man, it was necessary for him to be tempted. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness precisely for that encounter. For his showdown with the serpent, with Satan. And Jesus, not from a position of comfort in a garden paradise with all kinds of fruit trees, but rather hungry and in a wilderness, faced Satan. And indeed, as we read, he overcame. And he did this at the outset of his earthly ministry, the outset of his public ministry. He demonstrated Right after the bat, he's baptized, driven out into the wilderness, and he conquers over Satan in this temptation. He demonstrates that he is the true and faithful son. He is the Messiah who has come. Just as the Father has declared him to be at his baptism, so Jesus proves himself to be by being sinless. And he did this not simply just to show that he was the faithful son, but he did this on behalf of those he came to save. We with Adam have fallen into sin. Jesus has come in victory over sin. He is the one that we look to, to provide us with our covering for our spiritual nakedness. Jesus went on through all of his earthly days in perfection, And then offered himself at the cross to pay the penalty for sinners. For those ruined by Adam's fall. And he has risen again from the dead in victory over the penalty of death. Sinners die and stay dead. The Lord Jesus Christ conquered it and rose from the grave. All who are in Adam 
shall die. But all who are in Christ by faith, believing in him, shall live. Jesus told Martha, though you die, yet shall you live. Satan's claim on mankind is only good because God's justice demands punishment for sinners. It is not that Satan is some close to equal power to God and has a really strong grip and God has to pull out all the stops to try to break Satan's grip or something like that. Satan's power is tied to God's law and his demand for justice. God's justice now demands in light of Adam and Eve's sin that they die, that all who sin die and be judged eternally. What's going to happen? And it is through the work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, that God's justice against sinners is satisfied. As Jesus satisfies God's wrath for those sins by dying in our place for our sins. And so God can forgive us and pardon us for those sins because his justice has been satisfied. And there is now righteousness for us to be clothed in that Christ himself has attained, a righteousness that comes to us from God, received, the scriptures say, by faith, by believing in Christ Jesus. This is a gift of God's grace to sinners. As Christ's gospel goes forth, and men and women believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they come out from under darkness. Satan's rule, they come out from being under Adam, and they come under Christ's rule. And so Satan's grip on Christ's people is gone. It is no more. And his final defeat is sure and yet to come. As we go through into next week, we'll continue through in chapter 3 and we'll see more of the effects of sin and God's judgment upon it and upon his, all of creation, this chapter, again, is so critical and crucial to understanding our world. And it's crucial to understanding our own selves and why it is that we need the Lord Jesus Christ. So believe in him. Confess your sins honestly before God. I think the proper response for Adam and Eve, they're that Hiding is understandable why they'd want to do that. But I think the proper response would be for them to acknowledge openly what they've done and cast themselves upon the mercy of God, plead for him, with him for mercy. The sin and shame that we, the shame that we know from our own sinfulness and when God's law comes and exposes our own sins is dealt with in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let us trust in him. Let us renew ourselves as his people, those trusting in him to battle temptation, that we might grow in holiness, that we might not have a low view of holiness, that we might not be dismissive about the subtleties of temptation, and that we might renew ourselves in the battle. 
trusting all the while in the grace of God to sinners who look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we are sinners before you, exposed by your law. Your light exposes us. But Father, you tell us to bring that into the light that we might find mercy, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God, you are not holding out on us, but you offer yourselves freely. God, may we rejoice in your grace to us and long to seek after you and know you. Father, we thank you for Christ Jesus. Thank you for revealing him to us. Thank you for sending him. We praise you and give you thanks. He is our only hope. We thank you for the righteousness that is ours by faith in Christ. Father, strengthen us in this. Use this to loosen our grip on the world or perhaps its grip upon us. Father, let us engage the battle joyfully and gladly, confident that you will bring us through to the end. So we give you praise and thanks and we just ask you to to help us in everything. And we call out to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.